Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 89 of the National Security Law Podcast brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's April 8th, 1952. My fellow Americans, tonight our country faces a grave danger. We are faced by the possibility that at midnight tonight, the steel industry will be shut down. This must not happen. Steel is our key industry. It is vital to the defense effort. It is vital to peace. We do not have a stockpile stockpile of the kinds of steel we need for defense. Steel is flowing directly to the plants that make it into defense production. If steel production stops, we will have to stop making the shells and bombs that are going directly to our soldiers at the front in Korea. If steel production stops, we will have to cut down and delay the atomic energy program. If steel production stops, it won't be long before we have to stop making engines for the Air Force planes. These would be the immediate effects if the steel mills closed down. A prolonged shutdown would bring defense production to a halt and throw our domestic economy into chaos. These are not normal times. These are times of crisis. We've been working and fighting to prevent the outbreak of world war. So far, we have succeeded. The most important element in this successful struggle has been our defense program. If that is stopped, the situation can change overnight. Of course, it's not actually 1952. It's Thursday, August 23rd. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek, and that was Harry S. Truman. That's a special guest from, from the past. <laughs> yeah, they say, they say we never have special guests. Come on. <laughs> President Truman himself. So it's Steve, not actually what's August, going on here? It's not actually August 23rd by the time people are listening to this, because this is our second banked deep dive episode in a row. But as promised, this is our deep dive into, Bobby, one of the foundational canonical separation of powers cases in national security law, Youngstown Sheet and Tube Company versus Sawyer, a.k.a. the Steel Seizure Case. It's, it's by any measure, one of the all-time biggies, and uh, it's very worthy of inclusion on the deep dive episode. Um, so we've, we've opened with uh, President Truman telling us <laughs> what he did that set off the case, but of course it doesn't do to just jump in right there. No. Uh, how about we do this? Why don't we do some background to explain some of the prior history of executive branch nationalizations of industry, uh, especially in relation to wartime, and then get into the the complex set of statutory and, and uh, economic developments that precipitated his, his message there. And then also the litigation and how it ends in the Supreme Court with the six to three decision invalidating President Truman's unilateral seizure of the steel mills. The iconic decision, or well, it's interesting because <laughs> some parts are more iconic indeed. than others, and we'll talk about why some of those opinions stand out more than others. And then we'll talk about the sort of subsequent reception of it all. And, and just to spoil the punchline, and I will try to convince you that Justice Jackson's concurrence is wildly overrated. Oh, so I was hoping we would disagree more. Oh, you but, agree? Yeah, no, oh, I think okay. I think it is <laughs> like I, like a lot of stuff. It's he wrote it was really well written. Um, as, as, as Justice White once told one of his law clerks, you write beautifully. Justice Jackson had the same problem. 
fortunately, it's a problem neither of us share. So. All right, well, let's jump right in with some background. Um, let, me, let me paint the scene, if I could. By the uh, way, you realize that like four minutes in, we just told people that this canonical case that we're celebrating with a deep dive is actually not nearly as good and useful as we think, as, as it's portrayed to be. Well, what they'll see in the end is that the, the case is useful and important, but just maybe not for the reasons for which it's most often referred. Taught. Yep, yeah, indeed. Yeah. All right, so Bobby, facts, go. Okay, good. Oh, and we should probably add, because I imagine from time to time some of the noise in the background is going to seep in. Uh, lucky for <laughs> Steve and I, there's some kind of unexplained construction going on, like right outside his office. And so you may hear some banging that's not Steve bouncing his head off the wall in frustration not, at not, things I'm saying. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. It might be. That is that is a deeper, more resonant <laughs> thud. You'll, you'll be able to tell the difference soon, I suspect. All right. So um, by the start at the beginning, so the Korean yeah. War. Yeah. Okay. So it's the 1950s. Let's talk about what's going on overseas and at home. Um, because the case is about overseas and at home. Overseas, America is in the grip of an immensely bloody and stalemated war in Korea. Korean War had begun in summer 1950, famously when the North Koreans uh, launched their surprise invasion of the South. Uh, for, the, for a time, it went amazingly well for the American-led UN forces that came to South Korea's aid, uh, famously Doug, Douglas MacArthur's uh, amphibious landing behind the lines, uh, set off a, a route of the North Korean forces that continued past the original dividing line between North and South Korea. Next thing you know, U.S. and, and allied forces are approaching the border with China. A horrible mistake. MacArthur pressed his advantage much too far. The Chinese intervened on a massive scale, pushing America and its allies back. All the way back. By 1952, by the spring of 1952, when these uh, legal events start unfolding, uh, the bloodshed was fierce, constant, and the lines were not moving. It was, it was a bloody stalemate, as I said. Uh, at home in the United States in 1952, around this time, uh, to kind of paint a picture of what America was like then, this is the year that Singing in the Rain and High Noon were in the theaters. Uh, Ralph Ellison, published Invisible Man, got the National Book Award that year. Uh, Elvis, just a high school kid. Nobody knows him yet. Uh, the Gibson Les Paul guitar invented during this time. And the American economy, writ large, it's still partially but incompletely in the lingering grasp of the types of regulatory interventions and safeguards that have been controlling wages and prices during the recently concluded Second World War. And therein lies the story for us. Now, this story about the, the backdrop of the steel seizure decision, uh, it's told really, really well by the awesome Patricia Bellia of Notre Dame Law in a chapter in the, uh, I think, must-read Presidential Power series, uh, Stories book. That the, the Stories series by Foundation Press, my friends, is a, a set of books. There's one for civil procedure and for contracts. Federal courts. That, is there a Fed courts one? Do you have yes. a chapter in it? I don't. Oh, that's, I, that's an outrage. I, I, I wasn't fancy enough. Well, you would be now. Yeah. Um, well, with the podcast and all. Oh, totally. The, the podcast <laughs> has made me. So the, the, this series basically was telling the full... By the way, is that an episode title of the podcast? I guess we're doing, a, we're doing a boring episode title. Otherwise, this podcast has made me. Yeah. Might have to be the episode title. Yeah, you know what? That could be... The, that That will appear later on okay, in the enough. series. So anyways, um, Patricia's got a great chapter telling the story, I think, exceptionally well. And a lot of what I'm about to say is just drawn from her. So full credit and citation to Patricia. Go read it. Get a copy of Presidential Power Stories. Uh, Steve, I'd say they're about due for another round of those types of... I think Foundation discontinued them. Yeah, that was a mistake. I, uh, yeah, well, you got deep dives instead. Indeed. So here, here's the things you need to know. Okay, so first of all... Um, 
I referred a moment ago to wage controls and price controls. What's going on there? Well, in 1950, there's a statute, the Defense Production Act, which delegated to the president the authority to impose price caps on certain goods and services, but also required him to impose corresponding or somewhat related wage caps in those industries that were then that were being subjected to price caps. So the idea was to try to keep a lid on prices, but in turn, then you have to keep a lid on the cost of production to keep everybody in business. So as you might imagine, uh, that sort of interference in the market does run a lot of risks of miscalculating things and causing problems. You set prices too high and the wages too low, and then you're gonna give a huge windfall to the owners. You do the reverse, you set prices too low and wages too high, then the owners might be driven out of business. And of course, you're gonna to have to wrestle with how to strike that balance in a context where both the owners and the unions are gonna be arguing that whatever it is you're proposing, it's a terrible idea, it's gonna screw us over, can't do that. Now, against that backdrop, uh, Truman, in response to being granted the authority and, and the obligation to do this, um, creates a wage stabilization board, so sort of an administrative agency to consider what the wage ought to be in, say, the steel industry. And he has a director of price stabilization to make similar recommendations about how much should steel be allowed to be sold for per ton. Um, now add into the mix the possibility that it, in some of these industries, the workers are in fact unionized and the union might call a strike in order to make its views uh, felt more keenly, put a little pressure out there. Uh, this had happened plenty of times, including during war. Indeed, when you study the, the uh, sort of the economics of war fighting for the United States in the 20th century, a big part of that story is wrestling with how to keep the workers and the owners all in the factories producing in a context in where there are serious wage battles going on and serious efforts by the government to cap prices. So in World War I, in World War I, there were a wave of strikes uh, early on that were causing significant anxieties about defense production. And Congress responded by passing a series of statutes that gave President Wilson the authority to seize certain industries, that is, to nationalize them or temporarily take government ownership and keep them uh, producing. Uh, you get to World War II, or actually, let's, let's actually stop just shy of American entry into World War II. Go to the summer of 1941. The Allies are in. Under the Lend-Lease Act, we are supposed to be producing aircraft for the Brits in particular, but I, I think also for the Soviets. There's um, also the Destroyers for Basis deal, which exactly. is especially ironic in retrospect because the opinion defending the legality of the Destroyers for Basis deal is written by the then Attorney General. Robert Jackson. Robert Jackson. Yes, we'll, we'll, we'll note another thing he did then. Um, so summer 1941, there's a, there, there is a critical production of aircraft facility in California, and there's a, there's a strike there, and it shuts down and cuts off the production flow of those planes. Uh, FDR, without statutory authorization, ordered the Secretary of War to seize the plant and put it back into production to temporarily nationalize the thing. And his attorney general, as Steve said, was Robert Jackson. And he wrote an opinion, you know, just internal to the executive branch, explaining that FDR did have the constitutional authority to do it. And his argument was that the president has a constitutional duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. And referencing the Lend-Lease Act and certain other statutes that talked about expanding U.S. armed forces, he says, well, you can't execute that if the plant's been shut down by strike. So between that and some broader, less explained notion of the commander-in-chief power, FDR had authority to nationalize the plant. Well, 
You then get America entering World War II, and Congress at that point largely spares FDR the need to try to test that authority again. It passes statutes like they'd done in World War I, authorizing various nationalizations, and, and a bunch of them did follow. And, and there's some more complexity to it than that, but that's the important stuff. Um, now, Harry Truman knows all about this. He's, he's FDR's vice president, although he you know, famously wasn't included in a lot of FDR's decision-making. <laughs> but at least when he inherited the presidency when FDR died, um, you know, he's, he's in for the, the finale on a lot of this stuff. So he knows about nationalizations uh, for war purposes. Uh, when the war ended, America saw a lot of big strikes around the country in 1946. And it also saw uh, in Congress the election of members who were generally much more conservative about uh, union uh, activity, and they the the Republican Congress began pressing the Labor Relation Labor Management Relations Act, better known as the Taft Hartley Act. The Taft Hartley Act was vetoed by Truman, but it was then passed by Congress over his veto. What was the big deal here? Well, um, first of all, it was about trying to minimize resort to strikes and included language specifically concerned with industries where strikes would happen and it might affect national defense, national security, as we would say today. Um, there had been talk about including a straight up authorization, as there had been in the past, authorizing nationalization in such cases but that did not become part of the bill never became part of the law but it's significant that it was considered it's going to be a very it's going to, be, it's going to become very significant that it was considered indeed it, you might even say there were implications uh, you might from that well so what did make it in um what taft hartley authorized the president to do in a case like this was to convene a body they would, in effect, explore the situation, see what could be done. And if that body recommended that indeed a strike would threaten national uh, health or safety, that was the trigger phrase, then in that case, the Justice Department could obtain an, an injunction barring a strike for 80 days. And here's the kicker. During those 80 days, the union would have a vote on a secret ballot, right? not a public vote where everyone, every member would be known to the others how they voted. They'd vote secretly. Um, and, and you can imagine, you know, that helped create a, a disincentive for the unions to support the bill. Um, but the key point here is there was something that you could do to slow things down for 80 days. And you could even engineer a, a vote that might well head off the strike because secret ballots really could likely, in some cases, produce a different outcome than, than a, a more public ballot, uh, which helps explain some of Truman's opposition to it. All right. So that brings us to that's the legal status quo. When you get to the Korean War, you get to the summer of 19 or sorry, the spring of 1952. Uh, and Truman found himself confronted with a looming strike in the steel industry. Now, this began to get hot in late 1951 when the United Steelworkers Union began pressing for pay raises for the workers. The company said no, not unless the uh, feds grant us a completely offsetting um, uh, uh, increase in prices per ton of steel. They wanted a, a $12 per ton increase. Um, two layers of, of contestation here. One was whether they should be made whole in that sense at all. And then the second layer was, is $12 the right figure or would that be a windfall? Because the union took the position that it really only took maybe 3 or $4 increase to make them whole. Right. And anyways, why should they be made, made whole? Maybe they should just come out of their profits. Um, there was uh, some amount of negotiation that went on. It was kind of protracted. Uh, Truman at one point asked the Wage Stabilization Board to please look into a wage increase and asked the price director to look into a possible price increase. And that 
sort of spent some time. The strike was forestalled in the meantime, but eventually became clear that the parties weren't going to agree. And critically here, if, if we played more of the Truman message, you would hear him going on at incredible blunt length about how he feels basically that the owners were being greedy and that this was basically a windfall situation, that their profits per ton were actually higher than they had been in recent years. And, they, and, and you can see that as a policy matter, he just didn't agree with the owners. He agreed with the union on this. All right, so Truman's sympathies, it's clear where they lie. Uh, the negotiations are failing. On April 4th, the union gives notice that they're going to go ahead and go on strike in a few days. They gave a few days notice so that there'd be time to use the employees to properly uh, bank the furnaces and stabilize the factories themselves. And on the eve of things, Truman takes to the radio and gives the address that we just heard about. At the same time, he's issuing an executive order, Executive Order 10340, which among other things directs Charles Sawyer, the Secretary of Commerce, to take control of the steel industry and to operate those factories. So Steve, it only takes hours before litigation begins. Indeed. And it doesn't take long before it gets all the way to an iconic Supreme Court opinion. Um, let's discuss. Let's discuss. So so by the time the case gets to the Supreme Court, I mean, the, the gravity of the situation is, you know, the Youngstown Sheet and Tube Company went into district court for an injunction against the executive order. Um, the named defendant is Secretary Sawyer, who I believe was the Secretary of Commerce, yep. if memory serves. Um, and the whole idea was basically, I mean, we talked today about, you know, Jeff Sessions complaining about nationwide, one district judge shutting down an entire nationwide thing. Basically happened here. Oh, an early, I don't know how unique well, it was then. But. It wasn't nationwide, but it was like, you know, the Secretary of Commerce wasn't about to be like, oh, well, I'm just going to go defy this injunction everywhere else. It didn't matter because the case got to the Supreme Court so quickly. Guess the Supreme Court argued quickly, decided quickly, part of why, Bobby, we get seven opinions from the nine justices. Um, and by a six to three vote, the court holds that, in fact, Truman's seizure was unlawful, although there is significant variation among the six justices in the majority as to why. Yeah, exactly. So is it fair to say that, uh, formally speaking, Justice Hugo Black's opinion is the opinion of the court and it's technically it, has a majority in it. It's denominated as the majority opinion, although, I, you know, when I teach Youngstown, my students always ask, well, wait a second, you know, who are the five justices who produce the majority here? So there are six justices who agree in the judgment. Yes, um, the judgment's clear. That's right. that's a 6-3 vote. I just, you know, I, I have a hard time finding, I, I think at most there are four votes for the black yeah. position. I'm not even sure there are four. I think there's there's two for sure. Yes, and, there's and, two. And, and I think we'll we'll, maybe, we'll, maybe we should just enumerate, because they all write separately, yes. all right. which so, is convenient. So each of the six justices in the majority write separately. I actually think we don't need to spend that much time differentiating between black and Douglas, because I think they basically say yeah. the same thing. We, we'll, we'll just lump Douglas in saying, yeah, me too. So black and Douglas basically both write separate opinions that are, I think, fairly characterized Bobby is reflecting a very formalistic approach to the constitutional question. And for both of them, they view the seizure of the steel mills as an exercise of legislative power. Yeah. Do you want to unpack that a bit and explain the sense in which, at one level, depending on how you frame this, it's obviously an exercise of legislative power. Uh, but how so? I think, so? The, I think the, the idea behind both Black and Douglas' opinion is that this is a substantive policy choice that the Constitution commits to the people's elected representatives and not to the president by himself. And so, in a sense, they're teeing this up for what we're going to see more of in the other four concurrences, which is the relevant role or lack thereof of Congress, the importance of Congress's 
actions and inactions in the space. But for them, the case starts and ends with the proposition that there that the president could point to no express congressional authorization for the seizure. So this opinion, Black's opinion, is often described as highly formalistic. Yes. Uh, Douglas too, and yes, give him full credit or blame. Uh, <laughs> it is. It reflects an, a highly uh, hermetically sealed off conception of the separation, yep. truly a separation of power system, not a distribution of and, power system. And, and wholly without regard to arguments from historical practice or prudence or efficiency or context. Indeed, we know from the notes of the uh, justices' conference where they debated how to rule in the case, and the, the way this works is, you know, the they, they go in sequence and talk. You know, Steve, describe the basics. Who gets to go first in conference? So they, they, they speak in order of seniority, um, where the chief goes first and then down the line, they vote in reverse order of seniority. So right. that the most junior justice casts the first vote and right. the chief votes last. So you can try to set the table and frame it. The, the more senior you are, the more likely it is you can try to frame things. But can I say a word before we get there about the Supreme Court circa 1952? Yes. Right? So we're in an interesting moment in the Supreme Court because although the court is still dominated by FDR appointees, there's a over a decade where, or there's, there's yeah. almost a decade where all nine justices were appointed by FDR, we're beginning to see the onset of Truman appointees. And the Truman appointees actually play an interesting role in this case, um, including the man in the center chair, Chief Justice Fred Vinson. That's right. And uh, we will... Uh Perhaps we'll, we'll come back to that. Yeah, come back to that. Okay, so um, so, so Black and Douglas very formalistic. You were talking right. about the conference, right? Discussion. So on on their model, uh, you know, at conference. And by the by the way, but just the reason why conference matters, right. Black and Douglas at this point are these senior associate exactly. justices. So after Vincent, they're the next two to speak. Exactly, and and Black makes clear his formalistic view of this, which is. Oh wait, I just screwed yes. up. Sorry, Black. It's Douglas and then Frankfurter and then Black. Yeah, yeah but, exactly. Okay. Um, Black, when he does talk, makes clear he has a formalistic conception that what he sees here is the president announcing a rule of property ownership that is transferring property from one person to the next. And that that is something that quite literally is often done as an act of lawmaking. And he categorizes it as a type of government activity that is in the nature of lawmaking. End of story. And when people point out, well, but you have you have this past episode, which I mentioned earlier about FDR doing something very similar, if not entirely similar, uh, in respect to the aircraft production in the summer of 1941, Black's express respo response is, look, the, in effect, the fact that FDR may have also done it unconstitutionally is of no moment. That doesn't change a thing. And if we step back and look at this as a uh, expression of interpretive method preferences, Steve. I mean, that is a that's a good example of a commitment to the idea that the Constitution means what it means at one point in time and doesn't evolve through practice. I mean, that's that's expressly stating that. Totally. And and we're going to see a very different view from the more pragmatic and functionally minded. By the way, I screwed up again. Black was the senior associate justice. So he was. You wait. You had it right the first I had time. Right the first time. Hmm. Interesting. Anyway, but anyway. Yeah. So okay. So Black Douglas very formal. Um, it's an easy case, straightforward. Right. Yeah. Um, let me jump over Frankfurter and Jackson for a second to Burton and Clark. Okay. Because um, I think Burton and Clark are inter these. These are the opinions that tend to get the least attention in law school case books in law school classes, and I think that's a mistake because I actually think that they have a modern resonance that has been lost to some of the more academic focused folks among us. Burton and Clark say much the same thing, albeit in separate opinions. Um, and their basic proposition is that this would be a very, very hard case if Congress had truly said nothing 
and if the question was simply about whether the president had the power by himself. So a vacuum-filling situation like FDR had in exactly. the summer of 1941. Right. And, 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 they both, and, and they both expressed some doubt that they would have come out the same way in such a case. But to them, the case rises and falls on, as you mentioned, Congress's, in their view, express omission from the Taft-Hartley Act of the seizure provision you discussed, um, and from a couple of other sort of clues that they take as pretty powerful evidence that Congress specifically intended to not provide the authority Truman was claiming. Um, we can fight over whether that's a fair reading of the record, but for them, once it was clear that Congress had disclaimed, so for Black and Douglas, the president couldn't act until Congress affirmatively did something. Right. He just, he just doesn't have this kind of power, right. period. For Burton and Clark, that may not have been true, but that once Congress disclaimed the power, the president certainly couldn't act, um, which is, I think, an important sort of middle ground between the formalism of Black and Douglas and the functionalism of Jackson and Frankfurter. I think that's right. I think it's a way of also highlighting the difference between asking whether the president, through Article Two, in some fashion, has a gap-filling power to take some action absent a delegation of authority to do so from Congress, yep. and asking whether the president not only has that, but has the further ability to act whether Congress wants him to do it or not, right. to be able to preclusively act. Indeed. All right. So um, let's spend a minute on Frankfurter, although I think maybe only a minute. So Frankfurter is very functional, which means to Frankfurter, he really doesn't think that he can look at the Constitution and divine an obvious answer to the question. So instead, he spends pages and pages, because he's Frankfurter, um, going through historical analysis. And he looks to what he calls the historical gloss. Yes, the word gloss enters the picture. And, and indeed, it's now been appropriated for multiple review articles. Um, and, the, and the historical gloss that Frankfurter comes to rises and falls on whether you agree with him that the Korean War is different from the other wars in which presidents had exercised some kind of unilateral seizure authority. Because he points to the Civil War episodes. He points to seizures during World War II. And he says the only examples the government has of presidents exercising this kind of seizure authority are from when the country was at war in the only way in which it can constitutionally be at war basically dissing on the Korean War as not a war. Right, which ironically is a highly formalist way to look at the Korean War. Even a modicum of functionalism would say this This is every bit. Indeed, the government's position had been that this is a more serious in some ways conflict than a lot of what we actually did in World War II. In terms yeah, a of lot the, of it. And in terms of the just the mass concentration of American-led forces in a single theater over a multiple-year period. Indeed, um, especially once China gets the bomb. And especially once China drove us back well, on that. Um, but so, you know, I, I don't, again, I don't want to litigate or relitigate, as, as the case may be, um, whether Frankfurter's depiction was accurate. But for his, his opinion really turns, and this is where I think, you know, a lot of what Vincent is responding to in his dissent is, I think, if not obviously, at least indirectly directed at Frankfurter. Yeah. yeah. Um, because it really turns on the belief that the Korean War is just not the same thing for constitutional purposes, which in turn, I think, is reflecting a political calculation about the unpopularity of the Korean War by the spring of 1952. And we might add the Truman administration. And, well, they were, they were, those things were and he, related. And he had already, I think, declared he wasn't going to be trying. And so, and so I think from Frankfurt's perspective, you know, I, I, 
there's a lot the his, there's a lot of richness in Frank Herder's yeah. opinion, but I, I have I have some problems with how he sort of ties the the threads together. Well, so let me I'm going to jump in on Frank Herder a little bit because I do find it really interesting. I'm very interested in method, constitutional yeah. interpretive method, yeah. and that opinion is a really great exposition of what I call in in my class practical precedent. That mm-hmm. is you, reliance on post-enactment course of conduct and interpretation that's not from the courts, that's regular or judicial precedent. Which is how the political branches have understood their dynamic with each other. Exactly. And, and, and this begs the question, I think it begs the question, um, whether practice can actually give substantive content to the Constitution. So I think it's clear that for some justices, and obviously Frankfurter, uh, it clearly is a relevant interpretive method. But um, what I try to highlight is something in my class is something that he brings out pretty well, which is that if you're willing to be open to the idea that otherwise indeterminate text can have its meaning constitutionally properly developed through practical precedent, through the course of actual government practice in operating under that language, um, you need certain conditions to be met. You don't just say like, well, one time somebody did something kind of like this, therefore it's now constitutional, even though it was debatable before. No, Frankfurt says you need to have relevant examples sustained over time that are that are on point and that are not mixed examples where, well, here's an example going your way, but then there's an example going the opposite way. And when he does that big review you described, he's able to say, look, the vast majority of of seizures um, that are most relevant from the past 50 years were all done with statutory authority. They they shed no light on this claimed independent power. Um, And the other examples, like the 1941 summer example, they can maybe be distinguished. But even if they couldn't be, I think Frankfurt is saying this still isn't a strong case for the gloss method or the practical precedent method to yield a clear uh, presidential power, especially when you put it up against the implied rejection of that same power by Congress. And and again, for Frank, so for Frankfurter too, it's relevant that he reads the 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 context as reflecting a congressional disclaiming of the authority, where silence might have militated in favor of different results. Yeah. All right, to Jackson. Jackson. So we should say for those who don't know it, most people, most of the time, when they cite. Youngstown Sheet and Tube. They're citing the one justice concurrence by, by Jackson. Robert Jackson. And indeed, this is partly the Supreme Court's fault um, because in Dames and Moore versus Regan in 1981, uh, then Justice Rehnquist, in his majority opinion, purports to, if not formally adopt, at least embrace. Justice Jackson's concurrence in a majority opinion. Bobby, is there some coincidence there that we want to frame? Well, it is funny. Let's say when, when Reagan was a young guy, let me pull out his resume. Rehnquist. Did I say Rehnquist? What did I just say? Reagan. Reagan. Same oh, funny. Thing. Um, uh, same thing. <laughs> uh, when Rehnquist was a young lad. Uh, he clerked on the Supreme Court. For uh, Justice hmm. Jack. Jackson? Jackson. Well, when? Why it was the year this case was decided. So he was clerk for Jackson at the time Jackson wrote the opinion. I think he actually started right about when Youngstown came down. Like I think he, he yeah. was the fifty. Yeah, no one claims no one claims he actually, you know, no. was the clerk on this case, but he was there when this case was being decided. And he was deeply like he was a Jacksonian you know, Absolutely. fan. All right. Absolutely. So so the Jackson concurrence, I actually I I like almost everything about the Jackson concurrence except the part that is taught. Um, So Jackson actually, I think, does a series of very helpful moves to explain why these questions are hard and don't admit of easy solutions. Yeah. Um, He walks through some of the sort of, you know, 
prominent examples of people being on both sides of this debate, um, including my favorite line in the whole case, um, a President Taft may be matched by a Professor Taft, um, <laughs> right? That, that, that William Howard Taft, the law professor, had a different view of the president's power than William Howard Taft did as president. Happens a lot, frankly. Where you stand yeah. is a function of where you sit. But so there's a lot of very, I mean, the thing I like most about Jackson's writing style is it's very candid. Yes. Um, he, you know, he doesn't often hide the ball. And he likes, and I think in this case and others, he has a propensity to write his own struggles with the issue. Correct. Right. No. He right. He he writes his thought process, um, which is in many ways why he's such a good writer. But as a matter of doctrine, so so then he says it might be helpful to generally break down these kinds of disputes into three categories, um, and then we get the famous canonical trifurcated boxes. Uh, so trifurcated boxes is not what I thought you were going to say. I was sure you would say tripartite framework. Or tripartite framework or tripartite taxonomy. I, mean, I got to say, it's like, that's all, it's all so frustrating to say the three categories. The three, or the three boxes. The um, three boxes, even right. better. So so just to, to quickly summarize Jackson's three boxes, which are probably, which I suspect maybe even some of our non-law listeners might be loosely familiar with because they're so entrenched in constitutional yeah. dogma. Um, box one. When the president acts with the express or implied authorization of Congress, his powers are at their maximum, for he then may be said to personify the federal sovereignty, and only if the government as a whole is disabled from acting on a subject can he be stopped. Exactly so. So the idea would be, look, if, if Congress has delegated to the president the power to do it, you're not having to rely only on your inherent Article II authorities. It, the only way you can act is if it's unconstitutional for the federal government as a whole to be doing this. Perfect. Now, Bobby, let me ask you a question. What about that wasn't already clear at the time Jackson writes? Not a thing. Okay, sorry. Okay. No, just, that's just, like okay. and, and part of part of the reason why this is the tripartite yeah. framework is, is so resonant is it states a bunch of truisms, pretty, a bunch of truisms <laughs> that were that all were, familiar, but he, that were already but true. But he says it very well, and it's well, so citable. Indeed. Okay. Um, I mean, I, all I, right. So that's that's one truism. I, I, like my one else, I'm sure you have the experience. They're like, oh my gosh, this is so deep. I'm like, really, this is deep. He literally just said the government. Can only act on constitution when the government's acting together. The only constitutional objection can be that the government doesn't have the power to act. That's right. not deep. Yeah, I like okay. a good syllogism as much as the next person. Box two. Okay. The tw- the zone of twilight. The twilight. Good stylist. Um, so in box two, Jackson says where um, it's not clear whether Congress has been yay or nay. Basically, right. The the moving piece here is Congress. Right, yes. The independent variable is Congress. So box right. two is what we might call pure congressional silence. Um, Jackson says there's no easy answer um, and that whether the president has the power to act in the face of such congressional silence will depend upon contemporary imponderables. That is a hell of a doctrinal uh, categorical term to use. I mean, uh, what for, does that for all, mean? For all of the gruff that Justice Douglas gets for penumbras and emanations. Yeah, that's nothing compared to the imponderables. Contemporary imponderables as a constitutional rule? Let's cash it out. What do you, what do you understand him to really be saying? So I understand him to be saying if there's a matter on which Congress really never actually thought and couldn't have been expected to think, um, then we really ought to eschew bright line rules about presidential authority in the space and rather have the rule turn on the pragmatic concerns raised by the individual case. In other words, 
if the when Martians Congress land is silent, tomorrow, if, if, if the Congress is silent and the president's claiming authority that's not obvious he has, and it's not just determined by text, right. if, it's, if it's obvious, great, that's easy, that's ponderable. If it's not, then the truth is, if it comes for us, we're either going to stay out of it for political question reasons or we're going to get into it and we're going to decide it based on our preferences. And, and it's worth stressing that, you know, right at this time, Clinton Rossiter is publishing the first edition of uh, his fantastic book, Constitutional Dictatorship, which... Um, one of the many insights of which is, you know, thinking about the first 11 weeks of the Lincoln presidency, where Lincoln was a one-man government, where Congress was out of session. It's a classic box two scenario, right? If Congress is not there. And Especially has, if you've encouraged them to show up on the 4th of July, oh, there's also take that. your time arriving. But all that, right? So so Jackson's well aware this is out there. <laughs> no, right. So it, it, it's, again, a truism. It's saying, look, if, if, it's an, if it's an utterly open question, both as a constitutional matter of the president having the authority and what Congress's view of the matter is, then we're not going to know except on a case-by-case totally. basis. And, and he could have elaborated and said, we're not even sure we're going to be involved. If we are going to be involved and we're going to decide it, it's going to have to be like our preferences. Right. Okay. And then we get to box three, the lowest ebb. The lowest, the president's power at its lowest ebb. That's a good law review article That would title. be a great two-volume law review article. Yeah, too long. Too long. I, we, yeah. we don't have time to write that kind of article. <laughs> Just make a book. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, you're welcome, Marty. The, and David. And David. Judge. Um, Your Honor. <laughs> so uh, box three. Um, if Congress, if, if the president's acting in the face of congressional disapproval, if Congress has either affirmatively or implicitly expressed its disapproval of the president's action, then the president's power is at its lowest ebb. And the only way, and here's interesting, here's the first time Jackson refers to the courts, right? Yeah. The only way courts can sustain presidential action um, is if it finds that the president has a disabling power vis-a-vis Congress, that Congress is constitutionally disabled from disapproving the substantive action being undertaken by the president. So usually in class, my first question at this point is, does that mean that when you're in category three, the president always loses? No. And it does not mean that. Right. So let's, can we agree on any examples that might illustrate yes. where the president would win? I have the, I, the example I always use, and I wonder if it's the same one, is the Command of the Army Act of 1867. Uh, that's not the exact one I use, but ah. it's probably the, the rough same idea. idea. I don't so, use the actual Civil War era example or reconstruction your example, but I do put up a picture of Stephen Colbert wearing a military uniform and ask, can he be made the commander-in-chief by statute? So I just put up Ulysses S. Grant, right? And say, you know, before he's actually elected president, can he be made commander-in-chief by statute? Yeah. And um, the answer is an obvious no, because it's such an obvious and easy case under the text. Right. And indeed, we actually have a more recent Supreme Court decision in bo- where the president won in box three, right? The Zivotofsky two case from a couple of years ago. So um, the most important thing to understand about box three is that the president can still win. Absolutely. And of course, that is when you begin to see as the student first encountering the case that, huh, these categorical Are not, frameworks, they're, they're not they don't tell us, they don't how tell us to, who wins. They don't tell you how to decide and resolve the, the tug of war between the president and Congress over who gets the power and what the court should do with it. You still have to do all the same constitutional interpretive work to decide in the first instance, is there, because obviously the president in category three doesn't have a delegated authority by statute. So step one is, can the president you know, do this as a matter of, of vacuum filling? And then even if so, can they do it when Congress says no? Now, there's a fudge phrase in there. And as you ran through it, and this is the way I would run through it as well, expressly or implicitly, telling the president no. Implicitly is a fudge phrase because there's implications and there's implications. And I think this case itself, Steve, I think could readily have been categorized as a category two case. Or category one. So 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 you so so you start with does the president you know does the president always lose in box three? Um, I start with 
how do we know what category we're in, everybody? Yeah, okay. So, and first, to be clear, what did the, what did the majority so implicitly? So all six, I think, I think explicitly, I yeah. think all six justices were of the view that Congress did not authorize Right. Um, their read of and, and so guys, this goes back to the Taft Hartley. That's yep. what we're talking about here. Their their view is that they Congress thought about doing this in Taft Hartley, and there's some other statutes that are sort of lurking in like this the, as well. The, vol- the, the Selective, Selective Service, Service Act. Act of 1950. Yeah. And there's some stuff about seizure of you can do some eminent domain type things. There were actually other tools in the toolkit. Yeah. Congress but, but knows how to do this. Taft Hartley, they thought about doing this, and then they went another way. And, and unlike a provision that just drops out for no reason, right. there was ample uncontroverted evidence that Congress intentionally, right, that, that the provision that was proposed in Taft-Hartley was dropped not by accident, right? That well, it was- it's clear that th- for those, I think this is a fair statement of the legislative history, for those who expressed views and talked about it, it's clear that's what they right. thought. The, the thing about legislative history, who knows what Fair many, of, many of them may have thought they were voting on a different bill there at was that no, moment. There was no competing reason why. Like, no, right, there's like, no, there's no, no one, counter evidence. There's no one standing up saying, actually, we shouldn't, you know, the, of, the president has this authority whether we right. divide it or not, therefore we shouldn't. We don't even, want to insult him by claiming to give it to exactly him. Exactly so. Yeah, there's no evidence for any other okay. way. So so all six of the justices of the majority think this is a box three case. Yep. Um, for Black and Douglas and Burton and Clark, that's the end of the matter. Um, because once you're in box three for all four of them, Congress wins. Um, now, for Jackson and Frankfurter, it's not the end of the matter. This is why I don't think there's a majority. Well, would you say that for that four, they think Congress automatically wins, period, or they think they automatically win because there's there's no commander-in-chief type claim like your hypo from a moment ago. Oh, oh. I where think, where yeah. there's a good argument that, no, no, Truman clearly owns no, this no, issue. No, no, this mean in this case, right? Yeah, yeah, in this right. case, the fact that Congress has spoken is the end of the matter because the president right. does not have some disabling power. He doesn't power. have a disabling power. Right. Exactly. Okay. Um, Jackson and Frankfurter are harder. So Jackson then, the part of Youngstown that I think doesn't get taught enough in class is he then goes on for like another 10 pages to explain why, even though he thinks we're in, bo- he th- why one, he thinks we're in box three, and two, this is a box three case where Congress wins, um, right? And he looks at, um, he, he marshals evidence of what he views as the president's true unilateral emergency powers. He does not find seizure of property among them. Even though he talks about like suspension of habeas, he talks about calling out the militia. Yeah, do you find that persuasive? Um, no, it, that is. If you, <laughs> yeah, you you begin from the premise that indeed there are emergency Article Two inherent powers to do things that in normal times you cannot do. Yeah, and to say that they entail certain things like suspension, but not yeah, no, not prop, not certain property. So seizures. I'm going to confess a, a deep. If I'm ever nominated to a judgeship, what I'm about to say may come back to haunt me. Lean into the mic. I'm with Burton and Clark. You're a Burtonite and a Clarkian? Is I, that just because we have a Tom Clark lounge here at the I, law school? Tom Clark win here, guys. He's a long one. I wrote an article in 2007 saying this long before I was you know, even an apple in UT's eye. So so no, I think this is not just because I am affiliated with UT. Don't think that didn't weigh in the balance during the appointments committee <laughs> No, but, but but just to be clear, I mean, so, so we'll talk about this when we get to Hamdan. I mean, I, I really think that um, it is a – the hard cases are where Congress hasn't acted – and I think we can talk a bit about Vincent's claim that, in fact, this isn't a box three case, it's a box one case. Yeah. Um, you know, um, but that if you have a case, I, I, think, I think the president will almost never win in box three. Um, Jackson thinks he will usually lose, but not always, right? So, so the difference between me and Jackson is, I think, you know, the reality is 
The only time the president, to me, should win in box three is when it is a clear, is when Congress is clear, like it's sort of like a, a, a presumption of, in favor of Congress. No, I do think that there is that tenor to it. Like category three does do a little work in that it puts the onus pretty heavy. Like if you're not, yeah. if it's not sure, right. tie goes to Congress. But so Zivotofsky two is hard for me then, right? Yeah. Whereas the commander in chief example is not hard because yeah. that's right. And whereas I think Hamdan's not hard. So we'll get to Hamdan. Yeah. yeah. Um, so let's talk about, so, so to me, Jackson's concurrence has this canonical status that is not deserved because it doesn't solve anything. Like the reality is um, you're still going to have huge debates over what box we're in. Right, you know, was Congress silent? Was Congress, you know, what, what, if you, can you reasonably argue that they're in box one, two, or three? Um, and even in box three, you still have to go through the motions of figuring out whether the president has some not just inherent but preclusive, you know, disabling power. So before we turn to uh, the dissenters, uh, one thing that's really striking about uh, Burden and, and Clark both, uh, and, and I guess the others as well, um, for some of them are interested in the idea that if it really was a more exigent circumstance, yeah. it yeah. would be different. Yeah. Um, and that brings us to our favorite topic of deference to the executive yeah. branch and judgments about national security facts and national security uh, predictions. Truman, in that, that message, which goes on for like 20 minutes, his radio address, you heard the beginning part. He's like, oh, you know, the you know, our, our atomic program's in jeopardy here and the ability to fight the war and my god we're gonna be out of bullets tomorrow um the court bucks him on these factual and predictive claims of the utmost exigency which is really something i think it's actually um probably to my mind one of if not the most robust anti-deference principle cases in the whole canon so then the question becomes what explains jackson Right, so so I, I've been critical of the, the canonical of the sort of pedagogical utility and value of his opinion, but it's still I mean it's still an important I mean he still writes what is really the big opinion. Jackson, who for his entire career to that point, Bobby had been a pretty staunch defender of presidential power. Oh, yeah, he he def- he wrote the opinion telling FDR, sure, a hocus pocus, some reference to lend lease. You your the take care clause lets you nationalize this private property in California. Um, so does, is it a matter of a person maturing with perspective? Is it a matter of a person who's no longer the president's buddy and, or his, his key employee as attorney general, but instead now the life-tenured justice? I have a is different theory. I, I, so I've suggested in print that Jackson was scarred by his experience at Nuremberg. Um, right, so Jackson mm-hmm. famously takes a, a a controversial sabbatical from the court, basically for two years, to go be the lead U.S. prosecutor at Nuremberg. Um, if you guys are interested in sort of um, uh, palace intrigue, um, one of my favorite law review articles of all time is Dennis Hutchinson's piece on the Black Jackson feud, um, just about the nastiest internal fight between justices that at least that we're aware of. Um, did it connect up with any of Jackson's service? Um, it did, yeah. um, both directly and indirectly. Did 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 Black, so I don't know this, did Black uh, begrudge him taking that leave or feel it was incompatible with the judicial role in a so to formal a, sense? To a point, but there was also the, they both saw themselves as contenders to become chief justice um, after Stone dies yeah. in 1945, 46, early 46. Um, 
and I think they both they both I think thought to one degree or another that that they were owed the seat the center seat yeah. from Roosevelt. But of course, by early '46, it's not Roosevelt; not it's Roosevelt. Truman. Yeah. Um, and part of why Truman actually goes outside the court to find a chief justice is because he doesn't want to pick someone from one of the existing factions uh. among. I think uh, David Demnarski calls them, um, or well, some there's a famous line that there's uh, scorpions in a bottle. Yeah, yeah, right, right. right. This is the time period for that. This yep. is that that court. Um, but so I, I think Jackson was really struck and and not necessarily in a good way um, by his you know experience at Nuremberg, um, and I think he was wary of presidential power on the far side of Nuremberg to a degree that he wasn't because of his deep dive into the uh, the. Uh the Nazi regimes and uh, and the sort of and the sort and and the sort of you know the devolution of legal institutions. Yeah. Um. I mean, he has. I'm trying to find the quote. Like the very very last line of his concurring opinion, um, which I need to find and I should have had prepared. Da, 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 da. No, we don't. We don't do prep. I thought we we'd really, make clear. We really don't. Do, we do a little more prep for the deep dive episodes, y'all, as you can maybe tell. But we don't do a lot more. As so you it, can definitely tell. So at the very end of his concurring opinion, which I'm I'm, about, I'm pulling up right now, um, he basically says, and, and it's a sort of a haunting line, um, that you know, it's the job that that the court should be the last institution, not the first, to give up fealty to the rule of law. Yeah, it's um, a great and, line. And I, and I mean, I've, I've just paraphrased it to, you know, into No, but it's easy there. to see the echoes of Nuremberg there. And, and you can it's easy to see him, the combination of maturity, time, and then that particular experience, uh, plus life tenure as a justice, to decide that, you know. And, and also, let's not forget the times. It's 1952. We're, we're into an era of the Cold War in which there's a lot of, a lot of, angst and fear, Red Scare stuff going on. Obviously, it's easy to imagine, too, that Jackson has in mind some other possible issues that could come across the court's docket at some point in generally becoming less comfortable with uh, broad claims of inherent executive right, power. So, so he says, the essence of our free government is, quote, leave to live by no man's leave underneath the law, unquote. And just to tie this Nuremberg, that was the very last line of his closing statement at Nuremberg. Uh-huh. Um, That's pretty powerful proof of an echo right there. And then there. he talks about sort of, he talks about how, right, um, our government is fashioned to fulfill this concept so far as humanly possible. The executive has no legislative power. Um, we should be wary of executive power. It says, with all its defects, delays, and inconveniences, men have discovered no technique for long-preserving free government except that the executive be under the law and that the law be made by parliamentary deliberations. Such institutions may be destined to pass away, but it is the duty of the court to be last, not first, to give them up. Timeless words. Indeed. All right. So then we get the dissent. And the dissent is from the, the, the Truman crew. Yep. Yep. That's right. His own folks have a different view of it. Chief Justice Vinton leading the charge. Um, it's I a, think Reed was a FDR appointee, but Minton was Minton also was, a Truman. Yeah. So, so Reed and Minton uh, joined Chief Justice Vinton in dissenting. They would have um, blessed Truman's seizure of the mill. And this is a, I think it's fair to say, it's sort of a, uh, here are a couple of different arguments. You know, you could say that this is sort of actually enforcing the will of Congress because there's all these things that fall under the heading of making sure this statute that relates to fighting the war can ultimately be honored. It kind of has a proves too much kind of feel to it, but it also has heavy elements of deference to the executive branch during the time of a massive armed conflict. And finding at least not expressed disapproval by Congress, right? So, so Vincent makes a big deal of the fact that Truman actually goes to Congress and yeah. says, you know... Although by going to Congress, I think it's that, you know, he says Congress, I think at the end of the radio message, says if Congress would like to 
chart a different course. That's you that's know. their prerogative. But of course, <laughs> if, they, if if there was time enough for Congress to chart a different course, it sort of saps the exigency argument. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, so listen, I, I like the Vincent dissent because it illustrates how reasonable people could look at the exact same fact pattern and see the constitutional analysis totally differently based upon the relative assessment they made of executive claims and statutory interpretation versus, say, formalist preconceptions about the role of Congress. I, I like it similarly because Vincent, to me, his opinion is a kind of a classic. We're in the midst of a war. Yeah. This is clearly war-related. Deference, deference, deference. And then the majority basically writes what does not read as a war opinion not at, at all. all. Not at all. Because, because and, I think they, they, and they're not deferring to the president's predictions there. And it kind of gives the lie to the often, uh, the cliched claim that- inter a silent legacy. Yeah, exactly. Like, look, this, this is the Korean War. You can call it a police action or what, but it's this massive, massive yeah, I don't think war. Yeah, I don't think the tens of thousands of American soldiers who died and were injured exactly. were called a police action. Exactly. So um, what do we do with this? So Youngstown sort of has a weird life, right? Because it's actually not that major a case right. in- in law school casebooks or in Supreme Court deliberations through the 60s and 70s. And it really gets resurrected in 1981 in James and Moore, which is a case arising out of the Iranian hostage crisis. Although, just to challenge that yeah. a little bit, I mean, so it did play a role in, in sort of the Nixon era that's cases. Right. That's right. But, it was, but not strongly. Felt, but because it's not on point. Well, not only is it not on point, but also remember, I mean, the, the court is assiduous at staying out of the kinds of cases in which the Youngstown framework would have been especially salient yeah, right. during Vietnam, even though, of course, the Vietnam War raised these questions to a fairly well. It's just that the court didn't want to decide. Yeah, that. right. The political question doctrine can always Stand be used in. to keep those three boxes sitting on the shelf <laughs> without having to decide which thing to put into them. Well, there's also, the and, and, and there's a separate question of whether, you know, the three boxes, you know, had any bearing upon how the executive branch conducted its own internal legal Well, analysis. I want to come to that soon because yeah. I think that's actually the, as Ed Swain wrote in his really cool yes. article on the, in University of Southern California Law Review, Southern California Law Review, right? Yeah, I think um, one of the best articles yeah, about Youngstown. Uh, the political seen. economy yeah, of, of Youngstown, Youngstown, which basically says, look, the, what matters about Youngstown isn't how often it gets cited here or there. What matters is the recognition of the dynamics that are embedded in the truisms of the tripartite framework, how that inflects executive branch thinking. And the view of Congress as the key player, right? The view that, that Congress is the independent variable. And so, you know, it may be, it, it may be worthy, worthwhile to the president just to gain some form of congressional ambivalence. Right. Um, so right. actually, we should do this now real quick because we've, we've set it up. Um, the, the main takeaway, and I think Jack Goldsmith's memoir, The Terror Presidency, amply bears this out, is that under a framework in which even implied congressional rejection of a delegation yep. to the president counts as enough to put you in that fields tilted against you, third uh, third element, president power at the lowest ebb box, there is a powerful disincentive for the lawyers who understand that uh, to discourage the White House from requesting in any right. kind of overt or identifiable way a power be given if they think there's a colorable claim that they could try to assert it at least in the twilight zone of box two. Jack Goldsmith's memoir recounts episodes that he expressly describes as having been repeated many times over early in the Bush administration after after 9-11, in which David Addington would uh, challenge those like Jack and others who would, and uh, Paul Clement, who would be urging the White House to go ahead and try to get congressional buy-in on some measure that the White House was otherwise inclined to take. And step one of the argument was to for Addington to challenge everyone in the room saying, does anyone deny the president can do this? And of course, everyone says, no, no, we think the president at least has the, you know, the vacuum filling power to do this. And then he says, step two, can you guarantee that Congress is going to do what we ask and, and not also screw it up at the same time? And of course, no one can say yes. And so from a sort of a political economy of the tripartite,
tripartite framework perspective, it does seem in the short term, that's the key. In the <laughs> short term, it seems foolish to go to Congress. That, that you, you might lose, and then you're really screwed if you really need the power. Let's just try to get by without it. Jackson but as time inside, goes on. Jack's insight is that that may work for you and did work for the Bush administration a little bit in the short term. Over the long term, it, it, you're immensely weaker. Because the not only because not going not going to Congress can be explained in the short term as we're too busy, right, and it's an emergency. But as time the longer time goes on, you're introducing a strategic pause, and you're introducing the fact that no, you chose not to go to Congress. It, it changes the 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 optics of it for sure. But most importantly, by trying to go it alone, you increase the chances you're going to lose because you don't ever get into that Category One framework where the whole government's operating as it should, uh, rowing in so the same direction. I think the most. I think one of the. I, I might even go far as to say the single most important piece of law review scholarship about the AUMF. Um, is Jack and Kurt's Harvard Law Review article, Congressional Authorization and the War on Terrorism. Because what they basically argue in the article, and it picks up on themes Jack's written about in his books, is that you know the Bush administration made a both tactical and strategic mistake by not making aggressive, but first not just by not going to Congress, but then not taking the statutes they had and relying upon aggressive arguments tied to the statutes, as opposed to theories of preclusive, indefeasible executive branch power that were far more, I think, um, provocative um, once they actually got tested in the courts. The, the Bush administration will forever be, a, its first term, will forever be a case study in these sort of clashing ideologies of Article II independence versus the more cooperative but more contingent approach. And, and you've got sort of the, the, the Rumsfeld, Cheney, Addington, you side over here in the Goldsmith, Waxman, Bellinger side over there. Totally. All right. Um, so let me just say a quick word about Dims and Moore before we, we get to Hamdan. I bet listeners can now hear the construction next door. It's been quiet all morning, but now they're God only knows what they're doing. It's the NSA. All right. Um, so so Dames and Moore is important because in the midst of the Iranian hostage crisis, um, the court basically ta- adopts the Youngstown framework. You keep talking. I'll try to encourage um, them to. Okay. So the court adopts the Youngstown framework um, and in the process sort of reads statutes um, that really were not, I think, fairly read as express authorization for what President Carter and then President Reagan were doing, um, including the 1868 Hostage Act. And Bobby, I think like the Feed and Forage Act um, of like 1861 or something. Um, I, I that, missed it. Listeners, I was out in the hallway asking the guys to knock it off that, for 10 that minutes. But basically that Damson Moore sort of reads, ter- Damson Moore treats as a Category 1 case, a case where Congress had passed a bunch of very vague, unspecific statutes that didn't necessarily map right. well onto the hostage crisis. Do you think it's fair to say that it was a, a reach for, for Category 1 in the same way that Taft-Hartley was a Somewhat of a reach for Category Three, yeah, or and more, maybe more importantly, just showing you the whole thing's a spectrum well, rather than a series of discrete three boxes. Or it's in the eye of the beholder, right? And that and that you know and you can frame you, it. You can short of express congressional statements either in favor or against particular presidential actions. It's going to be always open to debate which box you're in. And probably likely that the cases that periodically bubble up to the court, they're going to be the open for debate cases, not the really clearly. Well, clean so let's talk lines. about Hamdan. So. So the, you know, Hamdan versus Rumsfeld, the big um, 2006 Supreme Court decision that invalidated iteration one of the Bush military commissions, um, it is, Bobby, almost entirely a case about statutory interpretation. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's one footnote that I think actually is doing a remarkable amount of work 
Um, and when I teach Hamdan, I actually like make a big deal out of this footnote. And it's footnote 23. Mm -hmm. um, in the process of holding, the Congress had not actually authorized military commissions of the ilk that the Bush administration had established at Guantanamo in contrast to what had been authorized, for example, during World War II. Um, the, the, the question naturally arises, well, does the fact that Congress hadn't affirmatively authorized these commissions mean the Congress has dis disapproved them? Um, and this is at the exact same time as the Bush administration is making in any number of different forums the so-called commander-in-chief override argument that any number of statutes, among them the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance mm -hmm. Act, the Anti-Torture Act, the Non-Detention Act, um, and a whole host of others were unconstitutional insofar as they prevented the president from torturing detainees, from holding U.S. citizens without statutory authorization, from conducting surveillance without a warrant. Um, and this was, I think, the most controversial single claim made by the Bush administration. They weren't the first to make it. It shows up in Nixon's veto of the war powers resolution. But certainly this was the most aggressive and comprehensive invocation of the argument we'd ever seen. And I've always read footnote 23 as a shot across the bow by the Supreme Court at this argument. So here's what the court says. Um, this is uh, in Justice Stevens, and here it's a majority opinion. Kennedy joins this part of the opinion. So basically, in talking about the, the authority, um, he refers to Ex parte Kieran, the 1942 case that legalized mm -hmm. World War II era military commissions. The Kieran court recognized that Congress had simply preserved what power under the Constitution and the common law of war the president had had before 1916 to convene military commissions with the express condition that the president and those under his command comply with the law of war. Footnote 23. Whether or not the president has independent power absent congressional authorization to convene military commissions, he may not disregard limitations that Congress has in proper exercise of its own war powers placed on his powers. See Youngstown, Jackson concurring, and the pin site is to box three. Yep. Well, I think this is deliberately wrong, right? So what, just to read, just to, to footnote 23 is saying, he may not disregard limitations that Congress has in proper exercise of its own war powers placed on his powers. Um, Remember, the president doesn't automatically lose in box three. So saying we're in box three and citing the box right. three does not settle the matter of who wins. Just begs the question to a certain extent. So, so I argued in a piece that no one has ever read um, right after Hamdan came out that the most important thing Hamdan did was gravitate toward not the Jackson concurrence, but the Burton Clark position. Um, that you're, you're saying that's actually meant to be read as converting category three into the president loses. No, 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 no. Not in all cases, but as a stronger default, right? That that basically a lot of work is being done in this paragraph by the term in proper exercise of its own war powers, right? Um, Stevens is simply asserting that Congress had acted properly in regulating the jurisdiction of military commissions, mm -hmm. which, by the way, I think is not a controversial no, assertion. Right. That's not. There's a reason you didn't explain it. But that's doing work. Right, which is that saying, if Congress has the constitutional authority to do this thing, then the president loses. Um, and he's asserting that the president loses here because right, he's asserting that when it comes to the jurisdiction of military commissions, Congress wins, the president loses. Basically, that you can go category by category and say whether the president's going to win or lose in box three. Yeah, so I think it's more, I'm not sure I quite agree with that last bit, and here's why. Um, he doesn't automatically lose in part in box three unless you make the subsidiary determination that 
in box three, Congress has properly acted within the exercise of a war power, yeah, and says, you still have to make that well, determination. But, but, and he says, right, in proper exercise of its own war powers. Right, no, right. So what I'm saying, like, but it, but you but have to go through that analysis. Fair enough. I, I still think that this footnote was meant as a shot at the Bush administration and not in this case. Oh, well, I certainly, it could be. Although if it was a shot, it probably was only heard by Paul Clement and others who were really capable of reading the tea leaves. I don't know, because right about this time, the Bush administration starts chilling out a bit in the oh, arguments. Oh, yeah, but, but for reasons that are much more direct and obvious and involve personnel change and who was losing influence than, than this. I mean, I, I certainly don't think that Stevens' footnote had any bearing on the the rise of, of Condi Rice's role and the decline of Dick Cheney's not, not role. Not politically, no, not politically. Yeah. But I just no, think no, no. But I, but I think it's, that, that's a much clearer explanation for why the legal and policy positions of the Bush yeah. administration uh, ameliorated over time. That may be. I, I think this was more than nothing. I, I think this was this. I mean, uh, together with the unnecessary holding the common Article Three applied um, right to the non international armed conflict between the United States and Al Qaeda. You know, I think this is the court saying. Guys, you're being a little aggressive. Well, sure. No, I'm, I guess we might be quibbling over some kind of semantic difference. Obviously, losing this case and having the commission struck down, and in the same breath being told that, in fact, there is not a gap in Geneva Conventions yeah. between coverage between international armed conflicts and NIACs. And those being are, told, wait, yeah. and being told that Congress regulating military commissions is not a is not a subject where you're going to win in box three. Yeah, no, those are all hugely important, both for interrogation and for for war crime trials. No question. Um, I, I thought you were suggesting that. Just sort of the the doctrinal boosting, if you will, the, yeah. the the goosing up of Category Three as maybe tilting it a little bit more congressionally. No, inflected, no, no. Oh, oh, was having a broader no, policy. No, I don't. Effect. So I don't think footnote twenty three shows has doctrinal effect, um, and I'm not sure about its policy effect. I do think though that this was this, this was Justice Stevens's way of saying, with Justice Kennedy's approval, um, you know. Congress, the, the Congress has a lot of power in this space. Yeah, no, I, I, so on there, I agree. Although whether the recognition of that vis-a-vis jurisdiction of court processes yeah, versus, would extend over to a lot of these other topics is far from clear to me. Fair enough. All right. Um, of course, we also have one subsequent case where the Supreme Court has weighed back in, and that's Zivotofsky too, um, where Chief Justice Roberts, who clerked for Rehnquist, when? I believe the term Dames and Moore Dames was, and right. Moore case of some kind. There's a creepy little there. chain here. There's like Rehnquist clerking for Jackson, Roberts clerking for Rehnquist, and they just both so happen to write the big opinion clarifying the. I, I think it just goes to show you what, it, to some extent, who's to say whether they'd any of them would have come out differently, but it does show you that we're all sort of creatures of our experiences and that the ideas that will be available to us are those we studied. Um, this sort of chain, this pedigree, uh, lineage of ideas doesn't surprise me too much. It all feels very academic. Well, although Roberts does end up in dissent in Zivotofsky too. But all right, so um, to make a long story short, Zivotofsky is the uh, Israeli passport case. And the great question of where is Jerusalem? <laughs> um, the executive branch position since the 1950s had been that Jerusalem is, you know, not in Israel because saying it's in Israel causes all kinds of complexities. Congress in 2002 says, well, that's fine. But if a U.S. citizen whose child is born in Jerusalem wants their passport and their consular record of birth notification abroad to say Israel, they get to say they Israel. They say Israel. Um, and so this leads to a lovely interbranch dispute over who has the power to decide where Jerusalem is. Right. So in, in part of what's going on here is sort of 
kind of familiar notions under Article 2 that the president as sole organ of the nation in foreign affairs and, and in particularly the textual authority to receive ambassadors, some combination of these things makes the president the one who makes the call on recognition of what territory belongs to whom outside the United States. Indeed. Now, of course, that's not a textual power committed to him in Article 2, right? There's no clause that no, says right. recognition. Um so the case goes up to the Supreme Court the first time on whether it is justiciable at all. The D.C. Circuit had said no. The Supreme Court rules 8 to 1 that the answer is yes. Goes back to the D.C. Circuit on the merits, gets back to the Supreme Court. And the court, by a 5, four, five to 4 vote, Bobby, sides with the executive um, and says there is such a thing as a recognition power in Article 2. And it's preclusive to the point that a statute purporting to interfere with the recognition power um, is unconstitutional. Therefore, we, we actually have a... Modern day example of a ca- of a category three box three case where the president wins. The president still wins, and it wasn't even an implied uh, contrary position by Congress. A very express contrary position. A, a, an express statute by Congress versus an implied power in Article yeah. Two. And yet the statutory status of the express power versus the constitutional well, of status of the impli- of the implied one. Once you've made the determination that it's there, implied or otherwise, it's going to win. So, so Bobby, where do things stand today? I think they stand, I mean, this may be a little flip, I think it stands the same place it were even before there was a steel seizures case, which is that you have to do the hard work of wrestling with the, the quality of the claim that the president has any power in the area at all on his or her own, and then should it be preclusive, which requires grappling with all sorts of complexities, as in Zivotofsky, and even if Jackson had never written what he said, you'd still go through that kind of analysis. I think that the utility of... of Youngstown sheet and tube to me over time, the reason it matters that that event occurred and that that case was decided is that it was in fact an international armed conflict of, of the first degree. I mean, it wasn't us versus the Soviets, but it was us versus communist China and North Korea with tens of thousands of Americans dead. And still the court not only decided the case, not only decided it against the executive branch, but in doing so, rejected express presidential determinations of fact and predictive judgment on the uh, que- on these questions of national security policy that were the utmost sensitivity. And that doesn't mean that, therefore, the courts always, ever after, did, therefore, engage those questions. Mostly they avoid them through political question doctrine and other dodges. Uh, but boy, it's a powerful counterpoint. I think that's why it deserves the iconic status it gets, but that's not why most people cite it. <laughs> I mean, there's, it's almost like the, there, you know, depending upon which side you're on, there are a different bucket of cases you cite for what you think the role of the Supreme Court should be. So if you believe that the court um, can and should just do its normal thing, even if it's wartime, you point to cases like Youngstown and Ex parte Milligan and Hamdi, and you say, look, wartime, still doing your job, what up? Um, if you're very pro-deference, right, you point to cases like Kieran and the court basically staying out of Vietnam. Um, and well, you know, those, are, those are two kind of different ones, right? So the Vietnam, the things you want to point to for real deference where the court stays out of it, there's nothing to point to because they stay out of well, it. Right. And then you got cases like Kieran. Korematsu. Or, or, although they're uh, not going to cite that. No, <laughs> well, I'm sure, sure not going to. Um uh, but Quirin for sure, and then I would say Curtis Wright. You yep. know, cases that recognize the power to wage wars the and Zivotofsky too, where uh, the prize cases, all these cases the where cases. the court absolutely engaged, but in some way or fashion, either lean, lean straight, don't, right. well, you know. The executive wins, and then if you don't like that, you characterize it as like, well, there was deference, and so they kind of gave it to him. 
but but people don't say the same thing when Congress wins. I think it's better just to say the executive won those, and it shows you the court over time kind of calling. Dare I say balls and strikes? They're they're nah. they're making judgments and they're exercising the judicial power. And it doesn't mean Congress always wins. Doesn't mean the president always wins. They actually try to figure it out. And I'm not saying their policy preferences don't enter into no, no. it. And clearly they do sometimes. Um, but they're actually performing what looks to me like a judicial role. Crazy. That's and, crazy. And, and and indeed. So so as you know, I mean, this episode is dropping presumably the week of. You know, Judge Kavanaugh's confirmation hearings. I mean, I think. Oh, it will, won't it? I think this will come. I think this will come up. And and you know, the podcast. Yes. <laughs> My first question for the yes. nominee, uh, Judge Kavanaugh. Do you listen to the National Security Podcast? Is it podcast? true? Do you listen to, or have you ever listened to, or do you know someone who listens to the National Security Law Podcast? Oh my God. I, I, I'm really worried that like someone at the confirmation hearing is going to pull out something I wrote and be like, Judge Kavanaugh, in 2013, Professor Vladek said this. I'm worried they're just going to say to him, Judge Kavanaugh, is it true you know this Chesney guy? How can we vote to confirm? Did you really spend all that money on Nationals tickets? You know, I got to say about that whole deal, my understanding of that whole thing is that he and his friends buy – I know. Oh, I know. But I just want to – for listeners who've heard about it, um, they bought season tickets and so Brett fronted that. yeah. And, That's not and then thing. people are like, oh, he throws all this money it's around. Not, it's, like, it's, it's not he's a just, thing. He's, he's the nice guy who's willing to put up it's, with it's the hassle. It's not a thing. I know. The, there are substantive reasons to, to have strong views about Judge Kavanaugh one way or the other, and that ought to be the— And about the Nationals, well, apparently. indeed. Um, so listen, I mean, I, the, the key, I think, is that Youngstown still resonates. Um, maybe not for the right reasons. Yeah, and, it, maybe not, and maybe not for the reasons it should. It's a totem. It's a, it it's a totem. Had, you like that? I like that. It's a totem in the same exact way, and I teach it this way, that Curtis Rye is a totem. It's, it's a shorthand for broad positions. It has its doctrinal meaning, its theoretical twist, and it's fascinating in and of its own right. But people use Curtis Wright as if it's just sort of this blanket sort of executive wins thing, courts stay out, and people use Youngstown often as sort of a, well, you know, the executive doesn't win, and, and therefore, and in both cases, our job is to actually look closely at what the what the court actually says and does with doctrine and theory in so, those cases. So I just want to, I want to say one point that I think is slightly disagreeing with what your last point. I, I actually think that the real importance of a Youngstown is lost on its most important audience, which is Congress. Because I actually think the single most abiding lesson of Youngstown is that if Congress really doesn't like something the president's doing, whether it's this president or whether it's all presidents, the principal way to force the issue, maybe not to win, but to force the issue, is not to tisk about it. And it's not to sue about it. It's to pass legislation. I can't imagine what current events could possibly be on your mind there. But I, that, but I felt that way 10 years no, ago. No, that's right. No, that's right. And look, uh, I completely agree in, as a broad generalization about the lameness of Congress yep. that the last thing they want to do is are the most consequential things. Correct. It, and, it, and that's been true over time. But it it's, seems it's, worse today. Worse and worse by the year. Yeah. All right. So uh, with that in mind, thank you for listening to this deep dive. We will be back next week with episode 90. And I guess we're going to have to cover like the highlights from about three weeks of activity. Well, nothing has happened so far. I mean, it's not like there were two convictions. You know, uh, Michael Cohen pled guilty to eight counts. And Wait, who are these guys? Paul Manafort was convicted <laughs> on eight counts. And I, I have a feeling that uh, we'll we might have a we lot might, to talk about. We might have about. a lot to talk about yeah. three weeks from now. So listen, thanks for, thanks for listening um you know send us other suggestions for deep dive top topics bobby's at bobby chesney i'm at steve underscore vladek we are at nsl podcast go hug your favorite um con law professor and, <laughs> and, and thank them for spending so much careful time teaching you about youngstown shooting tube versus sawyer oh there you go stay safe out there adios